From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Springs moves forward with its plan for police accountability, then portraits of protesters, what the movement for racial justice means to them in their own words. Now change is coming, so I think the thing that makes this feel different now is because everyone's listening. Plus, tracking outbreaks of COVID-19 in Colorado, nursing homes no longer top the list of where cases of the virus are found. Also today, a new project that recognizes and celebrates black women and women of color who are doctors during this difficult time. And a poet from Superior makes a statement with easy words. You're running on easy words while fathers are telling their boys how to survive a police encounter as if surviving's a choice. A hundred different strategies all born out of the hope that the father that's still alive found the secret for dodging the rope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. Colorado Springs is the latest study in the state to move forward with police reform in the push for racial social justice. This week, the city council voted to create a commission to oversee police transparency and accountability. KRCC's Abigail Beckman is covering the issue. Hi, Abigail. Hey, Avery. What are the goals of this police accountability advisory board? So it will do data-driven audits of law enforcement performance. It's supposed to provide a way for the community to share concerns and give the city council feedback regarding policy recommendations. It will have other areas it can acquire about, but those have to be approved by the city council. And who's going to be on the commission? Um, So the commission will have 11 members, one representative from each city council district and five additional at-large members. Each member is set to serve a maximum of two three-year terms. And one of the people who spoke to the city council in favor of a police accountability board is Nicole Hannigan. She said it's important that at-large members especially represent the southeast portion of the city. It needs to be people from the community that have dealt and suffered with the pain and injustice that's been happening for years. How will the members be chosen and do we know what criteria will be considered? So a lot of that is still up in the air, but the city council will pick the commission members. There's still discussion about which council members will do that. It could be all of them or it could be a select group. The qualifications are still in the works, too. There are already more than 600 applications, and again, that's for 11 positions. I should note people can still apply. They have until Wednesday, July 1st to submit an application. So far, the only qualifications are that the person lives in Colorado Springs. There was discussion about compensation for the positions, but it's all still very preliminary at this point. Now, the city council wasn't unanimous in deciding to create this oversight commission. The vote was eight to one. What was the reasoning for that dissenting vote? Councilmember Yolanda Avila voted against the commission. She called it, quote, lukewarm and said it won't give a voice to the community and that uh, more needs to be discussed to make sure that the citizens who want to have this have a true voice. She also raised questions about several ideas that weren't included in the document to create the committee but came up in a work session the day before. She questioned why committee members would potentially have to pass a background check, calling it racist and offensive and something never considered for any other board commission or committee in the city. I should note that requirement did not become part of the expectation in the end. And there are certain groups that do require background checks like the Citizens Police Academy and working in law enforcement. What are other city council members saying about the Police Accountability Board? Representative Andy Pico, he is with District 6, said this is all about urgency. He said that while the ordinance may not be perfect, he thinks it captures most everything that they need to do. And here's what District 1 Representative Don Knight had to say. 
This is a great skeleton, but all the meat that the people gave us is missing. Overall, the tone was really about urgency and making sure that the committee has some kind of power. Does the Colorado Springs Police Department support the commission? Yes. So in a statement I got yesterday, Colorado Springs Police Chief Vince Niski says he's looking forward to the work of the committee. He said he's hopeful CSPD will be able to participate or allowed to participate in some capacity. Community members that have been involved in the process have called widely for the opposite that came up multiple times during the council meeting earlier this week. But the ultimate decision resides with the city council. And what's next in this process? The ordinance has a second vote uh, next month, July 14th. That's during a regular city council meeting. They have to make final decisions on how to vet the people applying for the commission, and that's going to be a huge job. They also have to talk about limitations the board might face. Those are based on state law regarding access to personnel files and certain law enforcement documents. Abigail, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. KRCC's Abigail Beckman reporting on the creation of a police accountability board in Colorado Springs. Thousands have protested in front of the Colorado Capitol in the weeks following George Floyd's death. The sizes of the crowds and the specific demands have varied, but the themes of social justice and racial equity are constant. At one of these demonstrations, a vigil for George Floyd on June 9th, photographer Kendallin Willett and I met protesters on a windy day in Civic Center Park in Denver, and we gave them the microphone to share their perspectives on the momentum of the movement. Brad Turk was one of the first people we met. He's retired now, but he says that he's been a lot of things, including a photojournalist, an attorney, and a school teacher. I did a lot of protesting during my time. Uh, back then, they weren't shooting rubber bullets, they were shooting real bullets. And so, but what really impresses me the most, because when I was demonstrating, if it was for a black cause, it was like 95% black. I see all the young Caucasian people of every race out. That just blew my mind. They'll begin to now imagine themselves be, and being black. They've been shielded all this time from what we had to go through. But what happened with him, it happened with black folks all the time. They're in a black person in America who hadn't been marginalized by the police. So I knew the Floyd murder had to be something special because... When Trevor Martin got killed, I had a teenage son that looked exactly like Trevor Martin. That just broke my heart. When Sandra Bland of uh, Houston, uh, Prairie A&M University got killed, that just broke my heart. But this is truly a revolution. This is a movement. Things are really going to change. Medean Holmes attended with her 21-year-old son and teenage daughter. I came out here to make racist America as uncomfortable as possible, and I plan to continue to do that until we see the right kind of change. Um, And then to the people that are our allies, um, particularly the white allies, I just want to say that the end of white privilege is not the start of white oppression. It's the birth of equality. So we're not here for revenge. We're here for justice, and we want to simply be able to live a human life because that's what we have been robbed of. So many of us continue to be robbed of that, and it's not okay. So at this point, the the world is changing. This is going to be, this this time will be different. This will not be a temporary temporary shift. This is going to be permanent, and it's time for us to all stand together so that we can all be a part of the change. Holmes' daughter, Devion Fugit, is 16. So I consider this like a second civil rights movement, so it's really powerful to be a part of this, but it also is sad that we have to do this all over again. But I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a part of this in my generation. 
Maya Thomas was at Civic Center Park after a long day at work. One of the strongest things you can do is speak from the heart. That's one thing that bothers me about reminding people that black people like myself deserve the right to live, is that there are people out there that believe the opposite and they don't even know my heart. Sage Wilson spoke at the vigil. She's been thinking a lot about leadership. I feel like there's a lot of brothers and sisters, white and black, like tearing each other down internally. And we really just need to come together in this time. And we might disagree. You know, there are some people that want to burn it to the ground. There's other people that want peace. I think overall our goal is the same and everyone is entitled to how they want to handle it. But don't get upset when people aren't leading it how you want it to go. If you want it to go a certain way, then stand up and be the leader that you're looking for and what you're asking for in other people. It's also really important to for everyone to keep in mind, like, black people are facing two different kinds of racism, externally and internally within our own race. And that is something that has been a psychological conditioning for us. And so it's not that we're just, you know, asking everybody out here to obviously, you know, stand with us, but more than just, I'll take a bullet for you, or more than just, I'll stand, I'll put my body in front of you and the police. Like, how are you helping us get bills passed in our favor? How are you helping us, like, send our children to college? How are you helping us get out of prison? Um, What are you doing to the system than just being out here marching and taking a picture with your sign and posting on the Internet? Wilson also shared a poem that she wrote and that she read at the gathering. My wealth is love. It's infinite, and there is no limit to how far the ripple effect of my service to others can go. I am energy, and energy never dies. It only transforms and grows into something bigger and greater. Wilson's friend, Michaela Harris, said that she was there to support her. She's mindful of her place in the calls for racial justice as a white person. I'm not out here to tell black people how to do their protests. I'm not out here to... Um, to do anything that's not asked of me. I will do. I will shield you from pepper bullets. I will speak if you want me to speak, but if I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak to the white people and tell them that they need to get over like all of this weird complex that they think that they can't be wrong when really we're all wrong and we need to move on, not cry about it and not feel bad for ourselves and make change and listen to people of color and black people and listen to what they have to say because for so long we haven't listened to them and we just brush all that that bad history that makes white people look bad under the rug when really we need to call ourselves out and check ourselves and and I'm just here to support every person of color every black person every black person out there and hear what they have to say and do what is needed of me from them because this is their movement. Carol Goodwin is also white and she said she knows she needs to do more to fight racial injustice. I'm an artist, and my voice is all about uh, the human condition, and so this movement just hits home for me and everything that's going on right now, so I'm here to see what's going on. I need to learn more as a white person. I need to learn a whole lot more. I'm already an ally, but that's not good enough, and so I'm here to find out what's going on. I'm proud of my city. I love Denver. We step up, we turn out, we make it happen. And so I want to see this carried through to actual change that's going to happen for our country. Um, Seeing the protests 
happened globally all over the world uh, has lifted me up and given me some hope. It was difficult being quarantined during the pandemic and we're still in the pandemic and seeing everybody turn out for this. Risking their lives for a cause that they stand up for is what I believe in. And so um, that's why I'm here. Walter Bond is black and he attended with his fiance, who's white. His shirt read, been tired. I want a change. I want to see a change in the justice system. I want to see a change, you know, overall. I've been doing this since 19, what, 73, and now change is coming. So um, it took a while, but it's, it's going to get here. I think the thing makes this feel different now is because everyone's listening. You know, it's not just here in Denver or here in the United States. It's worldwide. And, and you know, everyone's starting to see, you know, as a black man, we were not treated equally, you know, but they... But society will say, yes, you were, because everyone, you had the same rights everyone else has. But if you really look, look deep inside of it, we never had that. You know, we were always treated differently. So that's the one of the major reasons why I'm out here. Bond's fiance, Angela Lennox, said this is the first time she's attended a demonstration. This is my first time ever coming down to a protest for any reason. Part of me was curious just to kind of see what it was like and be in the moment of everything. But a part of me really wanted to support my fiancé. I, being in an interracial relationship, we've had many conversations regarding the race issue. And I have never truly understood. Um, And my fiancé would make the comments about being or having that white privilege. And I never really understood it. Um, Just recently, I watched a movie called Just Mercy. And it really, really changed my perspective. And so um, I, I get it now, and I'll never fully understand. Obviously, I've never been in the shoes of a black person, but I really just want to be here and support him, and so it's, it's important to me. Tawanda McMoore led a guided meditation at the vigil for George Floyd. Here's what she had to say ahead of time. It's time for you to recognize that we are one. We are the same. We, we have the same thoughts. We might have different views, but at the end of the day, we want justice and we want peace. And we want to be able to walk down the street and not feel like somebody who has a superior complex is going to end our lives. Um, and then also it's time for action for the government that's supposed to be working for us. We're paying these tax dollars for them to create laws to protect us not to incarcerate us, not to destroy us, not to separate families. I've come to that point in my life that I have to not bring myself together and bring other organizations together so that we can be that monumental force that completely changes history. Uh, This is our time. It it literally is our time. And um, I truly feel like we're at that point to where more people will accept peace, will accept working together, will accept unity. Um, I don't want people of color to feel like their voices aren't going to get heard, especially women. Uh, A lot of women's voices have not been heard, and it's time for their voices to be heard. I feel like women are going to be a monumental move for the change in that push that we are seeking. Uh, Also, the LGBTQ community, they need to be heard as well. Like we are we're all in this together. It's time for change. And 
now more than ever, people are ready. Voices from one day of protests at Civic Center Park in front of the state capitol building in Denver earlier this month. Photographer Kendallin Willette made portraits of the people we spoke with. You can see those at CPR.org. When we come back, coronavirus outbreaks shift from nursing homes and assisted living facilities to grocery stores and restaurants. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The majority of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members, which means your donation of any amount helps keep CPR strong. It also means because of your generosity, the news and music heard on Colorado Public Radio remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. And right now is a great time to give, because thanks to a $100,000 matching grant from an anonymous donor, your donation will be doubled dollar for dollar. It's easy at CPR.org. In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic in Colorado, nursing homes suffered from the largest numbers of outbreaks, with hundreds of fatalities. But as the economy now reopens, those outbreaks are increasingly shifting to workplaces. Lindsay Fent has been tracking the state's data on outbreaks for weeks now, with a recent focus on how a patchwork of federal, state, and local health regulations have left essential workers vulnerable. Lindsay joins us now. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Avery. You've done a lot of work on tracking the disease as it moves through the state's nursing homes, but now that's shifted. Tell me how. So before we get into that, I think it's a little bit important to define uh, what the state considers an outbreak. Uh, So an outbreak is any business or residential facility with two or more positive test results or suspected COVID-19 cases within a short period of time. So it's a pretty low bar. And because of that, that means that we have a lot of outbreaks in the state. And how many do we have right now? As of Wednesday, there had been 337 outbreaks in the state. Most of those are still ongoing, and they've resulted in more than 900 deaths. Uh, Most of those deaths were among residents in nursing homes. What's the reason for the shift? So starting in June, we've been seeing more facilities that are having outbreaks are classified as workplaces rather than nursing homes. So of the nine new outbreaks reported this week in Wednesday's weekly data, all but one were in workplaces, not nursing homes. And it seems like the main reason for that is just um, the reopening of the economy. At the same time that they've gotten better at protecting nursing homes, we've started opening things like restaurants. So there are now four Chick-fil-A restaurants alone on this week's list that have had outbreaks, though one has been resolved. Even some places that were considered essential during the stay-at-home order, like grocery stores, um, they're starting to see increasing number of outbreaks. So it's hard to say why that is, but it makes you wonder if maybe people are starting to let their guard down. So it sounds like a lot of different kinds of businesses dealing with these outbreaks. From the start of the pandemic in Colorado, one workplace has stood out, the JBS meatpacking plant in Greeley. You found some new information about that too, right? Yes. So JPS has had one of the state's largest and longest running outbreaks. They've now had 286 positive cases and seven deaths. Uh, Most of those have been among frontline workers in the plant, but there have also some management in the corporate offices who've been affected. As that outbreak was first getting started, the state wanted to shut JBS down so that it could be cleaned and all the workers could be tested. But with the help of Columbia University, uh, we found some emails that showed that JBS contacted Vice President Mike Pence to try to prevent the closure. And what did JBS want Pence to do? 
Well, they had the vice president call the CDC, and then the CDC called Jill Hunsaker-Ryan. She's the head of Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. They asked her to allow the plant to stay open and to allow the workers to keep working, even if they were believed to have been exposed to COVID-19. And did that happen? Yes. So after Ryan sent an email to Weld County's public health director, JBS was officially allowed to have workers who may have been exposed to COVID-19 working. But shortly after that, JBS did do some testing and they ended up deciding to close on their own. Um, That did provide some quarantine for the sick workers and it allowed them to clean. But still, nearly 300 have become ill and seven have died. And you found two different perspectives about what happened, right? Yeah. So from JBS's perspective, they are an essential business. The White House specifically has identified them as a critical part of the country's infrastructure. Um, So they want to be able to follow one single set of rules instead of having to do what the state tells them and what the federal government is telling them and looking at those things separately. And ultimately, we're the ones who expect meat from that plant in our grocery stores. So from the perspective of JBS, they just want to be able to keep a uh, the supply chain uninterrupted. But then at the same time, from the perspective of the workers and their families and union leadership, the company has not done enough to protect worker safety. They're all packed in a line doing their work, and they have limited protection from the virus. So what can be done to protect worker safety? It does seem like the state is getting more aggressive with enforcing safety standards. So a spokesperson for JBS told me that they had a surprise inspection by CDPHE on Tuesday, uh, and that did not result in a complaint from the state. I'm not sure that those types of inspections were happening very often before this. And what about the rights of workers? What can they do? So in all of these outbreaks in any kind of business, that's a difficult question. Uh, Even if a worker does get infected, uh, they have a pretty hard road to get help. Right now, more than 50 percent of the workers' comps claims that have been related to COVID-19 that have been referred to the labor department have been denied. That seems really high. Why is that? The labor department says that it is very high. And the reason is that in so many cases, the worker can't prove that they caught the virus on the job. Even if there is an outbreak where they work, um, they could have also caught it at home or out in public somewhere. So what will work? Uh, Union officials and legislators believe that the best way to start is to give workers a voice to speak up about their own safety. Uh, So the Colorado legislature just passed a whistleblower protection bill. The first part of this bill allows workers to use their own protective equipment on the job. And they included that because they specifically heard from workers um, that they were being told not to wear masks because it frightened customers. Uh, The second part of the bill protects workers if they complain about health conditions in their workplace. So they can speak up if they feel like they're not safe and they have a direct hotline to the Department of Labor to make those complaints. Do worker representatives think that those measures would help? Yeah, most unions do support the well, all the unions support the Whistleblower Protection Act. But we'll have to see the virus is going to be around for a while. And the workers I spoke with still feel that they need more from companies to protect themselves and they need to go to work in order to pay their bills. Thank you so much for being here, Lindsay. My pleasure. Lindsay Fent is a freelance journalist who's been covering the COVID-19 outbreak numbers for CPR News. 
Throughout the pandemic, doctors and nurses on the front line have been called heroes. But Dr. Sarah Rowan, who specializes in infectious disease at Denver Health, found that the depictions of these heroes were oftentimes not inclusive of black women and women of color. She's also an artist, so she started a portrait project to help close the gap. She joined us today along with Dr. Shanta Zimmer, who had her portrait painted by an artist. Dr. Zimmer specializes in infectious disease at the University of Colorado Hospital Anschutz Medical Campus. Sarah, Shanta, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Shanta, you had your portrait done early on in the project. Sarah emailed you to see if you wanted to participate. How did you feel when you saw your watercolor portrait? It really um, made me feel very seen um, in the face of this pandemic. I was a little bit reluctant at first to um, submit my picture because I feel like um, part of what we're doing in healthcare is just doing our jobs, um, taking care of patients. And some of the real frontline workers um, are the nurses and um, care technicians, as well as our grocery store workers. And so being called a frontline worker as a physician sometimes feels um, a little bit like we're taking too much credit. But I I love Sarah's project, and I love the idea of making – black women and other women of color seen during this epidemic, and I um, was excited to participate with her. So we're going to talk about that idea of being seen in just a minute. In addition to your work as a physician, you're also the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at the CU School of Medicine. But like you said, you yourself felt like maybe this project wasn't for you. Tell me more about that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I I definitely think that Sarah reached out to me because of my role in diversity inclusion and um, the work that I do with students and residents and faculty who are underrepresented in the field of medicine. But I myself am half Indian and half white and so mostly walk in a world of privilege where I'm not seen um, as somebody um, who faces a lot of discrimination. And so I was a little bit hesitant to put my face out there as somebody who was part of this project. Um, But I am a big supporter and an ally, um, and I do have a little bit of um, diversity in my background that made me interested in participating. When I first um, saw the picture, uh, the watercolor that was done by the artist who selected me, though, um, I felt even more empowered um, and, and very grateful to have been able to participate. Now, you also mentioned this idea of being seen. Tell me about the role that plays for physicians who are taking part in the project. I think um, one of the messages that we hear from our colleagues who are African-American or Latinx um, is that sometimes they feel invisible um, in a mostly white world, um, which medicine is. And so that invisibility can lead to kind of a, a sense of not belonging um, and is, is critically important in a time like this when we're all trying to you know, pull together as part of a major team. Um, and I think Sarah's idea to bring kind of light to um, the faces of color that are working on our front lines um, was exactly um, the right thing to do to combat this sense of invisibility and, and bring um, bring a face uh, to all of the workers who were um, taking care of patients during the pandemic. The invisibility piece breaks my heart because I think that um, all of us want to be seen for the work that we're doing. And I think those of us from majority groups probably take it for granted that we're represented in images um, of medicine, of science, of media all of the time. And our colleagues who are um, uh, Black or, or Latinx are, are not always seen in that way. Sarah, how did you come up with the idea for this project? 
Um, you know, it was just sort of a spur of the moment idea, and it uh, really evolved past what I could have imagined in the beginning. I was just taking um, a day off and looking at the New Yorkers that had mounted up on my um, counter, and there were a couple of beautiful covers of healthcare workers. Um, and I was also thinking about some images in Denver on murals that are also healthcare workers um, that are just fantastic uh, pieces of artwork. But I was noticing a pattern that women of color were not depicted as healthcare workers. And um, so I just thought, you know, maybe I should do a portrait of a woman of color in PPE. Just, it won't go anywhere, but, you know, what, why not? This is something I have a art hobby. I enjoy this kind of, this is my hobby. So, um, so I just posted on a, a Facebook um, physician moms group and said, you know, would any black or brown lady doctors like to send me their photo for a portrait. Um, you know, it's not going to be like on the New Yorker cover, but, uh, you know, it's, it's my way of, of representing. And I think it really struck a chord because 150 people sent me their photos and they're just a, a variety of backgrounds. Um, you know, people who are in the ICU, on the wards, in the emergency department, delivering babies, leading, you know, leading medical teams. And I thought, well, there's a lot of people who haven't really been represented yet. So, um, so I reached out to artist friends of mine because I thought, well, I can't do 150 portraits. I thought maybe we'll do a, um, like a photo collage at least to try to include everyone. And uh, so a friend of mine did the photo collage. And then my sibling-in-law, um, who's a really talented um, artist um, themselves, said, why don't we make this into a website? And then by making it into a website, we got a lot more um, visibility and people started submitting more po more photos, and then um, artists from all over the country started reaching out and offering to do more portraits. So this has really grown and taken off in a huge way. It started with a few portraits. Now there are hundreds, and you've got this website. This project, it actually started before the protests over the death of George Floyd and racial injustice and inequities. By design, it recognizes and celebrates Black women and women of color in their roles as physicians. Sarah, you created this project, and in this context, I want to I want to point out that you are white. Shanta, can you reflect on what it means for people like Sarah to be allies now and in the future? Yeah, Sarah's a wonderful ally and an amazing advocate. Um, I think ally probably doesn't even capture the strength of that word, but um, I think that we all are recognizing that in order to move the needle on, on racial justice and equality, um, everybody needs to be involved. Um, one of my friends who's a black woman and a physician um, talked to me about the time that her black son was watching a movie about the civil rights movement and said to his mom, you know, mom, there were white people on the bus. And she said, absolutely. This is something that we have to all do together. And I think, you know, literally having white people involved in fighting um, racial injustice is something that we absolutely need and we have to keep the momentum going. And I think the other thing that this project does is captures a really positive light. Um, sometimes I think we are fall into the tragedy and the sadness and the devastation um, of the racial injustices that we're seeing. But what Sarah's done is really celebrated the beauty and the joy um, and the commitment and service of um, black women and brown women in, in medicine and healthcare. And Sarah, what do you hope this project does for those who see it? Well, I have a few different hopes. I mean, I hope that it just 
you know, serves as a visual representation of who our society values and um, what's, you know, what, what's worth recording with artwork. Um, we'd like to expand, as, as Shanta said, we don't have, um, we just have physicians. And so I'd like to include all healthcare workers. Um, it started with physicians just kind of because that was the natural connection that I have. But I think all, all healthcare workers are, are critical. So I'd like to expand there. But, you know, I hope that um, people feel honored and, and appreciated. I also feel hopeful that this will inspire young people to go into medicine, particularly um, young black people or Latinx people. Um, I hope that the website drives people to maybe donate to a couple of the nonprofits that are on the website um, if they feel so inspired. Uh, I also think that um, it's it's been really fun to inspire artists. Um, art is just such a a valuable outlet for people who enjoy it, and so it's really ins- the the people who've submitted their photos have have really given back to the artists by giving us something to feel excited about picking up our our pencils and our you know paintbrushes for. And you called art your hobby. How does it feel to see this project take off? It's just so exciting. I think we've just all been really surprised. Um, and then as it gets momentum, um, you know, it's it's just really it's really heartwarming to see that many people um, interested in it and wanting to participate. And Shanta, you now have this portrait of yourself in masks and scrubs that commemorates this historic time. What does that mean to you? You know, I'm so grateful to the artist, Amy Moore, who chose to do um, a watercolor of my painting. And then she actually sent it to me. And it, I think it's something I'm going to always remember about this um, moment in medicine, which is unlike anything any of us have ever seen before. I, When I looked at the watercolor, I felt more powerful than I um, than I actually maybe did when I was actually caring for patients. Um, the way she captured the intensity of my face was something that I hadn't seen before. Um, and I was really excited to get to share it with my family um, as well. So I was, I was proud and humbled and actually um, inspired and, and so inspired by all the women who are f- featured on the website. And have you heard anything from other artists, Sarah? Anything from other, from other artists? About um, being a part of the project. Oh, yeah. Tons of artists have reached out. It's been really interesting. Um, A lot of art teachers, uh, high school and college art teachers, have reached out to see if they could offer this project to their students. And so we're getting a really cool variety of styles. Um, We have a cross-stitch group that's taken on this project. And a really cute story is that someone did a cross-stitch of a pregnant provider in her PPE with her face mask on, and it's just an adorable cross-stitch. And so she's going to have it framed and put up in um, the nursery for uh, the twins when they arrive. So it's just really neat. We have a woodcut and um, a cookie, just uh, a really surprisingly um, great variety of artwork. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rowan and Dr. Zimmer. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. Dr. Sarah Rowan is an infectious disease specialist at Denver Health who started a portrait project of black women and women of color who are physicians. Dr. Shanta Zimmer also specializes in infectious disease at the University of Colorado Hospital Anschutz Medical Campus and is the Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the CU Medical School. Hers is among the portraits painted by a local artist for the project. 
Before the break, some feedback we received on an interview from Thursday's show. We spoke with four women who were vying for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate in Colorado, but who did not make the primary ballot. We said that at one point there were six women running for the nomination. Trish Zornio pointed out on Twitter that there were more women in the race, and she was among them. Thank you, Trish, for the clarification and the correction. We appreciate listener feedback on stories. You're always welcome to email us, news at cpr.org. When we come back, a poet from Superior makes a statement with easy words. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News will bring you the latest on the Colorado Senate primary on Tuesday, with reports throughout the day and a live Colorado Matters at 7 p.m. Ryan Warner and Joanne Allen will be joined by CPR News reporters in the field, including Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C. Tune in to hear about the race to take on Republican Senator Cory Gardner in the fall, which could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Your source for 2020 election coverage is CPR News. Sometimes stories take an unexpected twist, like the story of Tommy Ryan. My name is Tommy Ryan, and the shop is Ryan's Cobbler Shop. Boot and shoe repair, a lot of people don't understand what cobbler is, but I've probably been in business for over 40 years. In all that time, Ryan has brought lots of old, scuffed, worn-out boots and shoes back to life for his customers. I've had... Bronco players to the Nuggets players and a lot of uh, lawyers, doctors, a little bit of everybody. Ryan's Cobbler Shop is just around the corner from the state capitol and right near Colorado Public Radio's downtown studios. And you don't have to tell Ryan it's been a tough time for businesses. With this coronavirus stuff going on, it went out the window because I, I mostly deal with downtown business people. And a lot of those people are not working right now, too, so they don't need no shoes. Things went from bad to worse. It's been like three, four months I haven't paid rent here because there hadn't been no business. And I put in for one of the loans, haven't heard anything from them yet. Ryan's son, Tommy Ryan Jr., tried to help. He put a sign in the store window that said, Black-owned business. The younger Ryan figured letting folks know that his dad is Black might drum up customers, especially at a time when there's growing recognition of racial injustice. You know, right when all the protesting was going on, you know, he's trying to see if he can do things to help me, you know, get going again, so he thought that might help. Turns out, Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner saw the sign. It was one week ago today. He visited Ryan at his shop, asked him a bunch of questions, and tweeted about it. And here's where the twist comes in. Since then, Ryan's story has gotten around. Someone set up a GoFundMe page, and in just the course of one week, so far, more than $15,000 have come in for Ryan's business. And we checked it back in with him. I'm planning on paying the rent and seeing, seeing if I can stick this thing out, so... Hopefully that things will start kicking in again. Ryan says it's a gamble as to when and whether his customers return. But for now, he's at his shop, still open for business. When protests against police brutality and racism began in Denver a month ago, poet Uche Obuji, a Nigerian immigrant from Superior, sat down and wrote a piece titled Easy Words. 
You're running on easy words while fathers are telling their boys how to survive a police encounter as if surviving's a choice. A hundred different strategies all born out of the hope that the father that's still alive found the secret for dodging the rope. You're running on easy words when the badges with all their training can be relied on not to kill a child in some fear nobody's naming. And the boy is tall as a man while barely a teenager. We can only guess how his awkwardness might prove his mortal danger. You're running on easy words while fathers fret for their daughters whose brown skins get taken for deep discomforting waters and the self-possession that should be her protection in the wilderness will trigger the weak will to weave against her their wickedness. And Uche joins me now to talk about his piece. Hi, Uche. Good morning, Avery. Tell me a little more about what drove you to write this piece and put it out in the world. When the protest against uh, the killing of George Floyd and, of course, Ahmaud Arbery and everyone else came about, I, uh, I was stunned. And uh, I was also stunned because in the intentionally politically diverse circles that I cultivate, um, you know, I heard, of course, a lot of solidarity, a lot of outrage, but I also heard, you know, a lot of folks, maybe different ends of the political spectrum, you would put, um, you know, uh, abuse of the demonstrators or denial of the fact their entrenched racial or social justice issues in America. And I spent a lot of time just listening. I didn't, I tend not to be too outward politically except to close friends. So I spent a lot of time just listening and absorbing it. And uh, one morning, this about probably about a week after the protests uh, began in earnest in Denver, the poem just came out in a torrent. And I just realized that I was just reacting to not only what other people in my circles had been saying, but even other things in my own, you know, person that I had had to, um, you know, I'd had to realize that easy words are often a way not to listen to other people. And you write about a father who has to tell his children how to stay alive. Are you that father? That is me. Um, the, the I believe, uh, I believe it was. So when I first came to the U.S. Uh, in the in, at the beginning of the nineties. Uh, you know, Diallo, Amadou Diallo, the uh, immigrant who was shot in New York, was still absolutely ringing. It was, it, it was such a, it, it was, it put the chill in you that you know this could happen to you. This, could, I'm, a, I'm a Nigerian immigrant. He was a, uh, you know, um, a Haitian immigrant. This could happen to anybody, you know, who's of dark skin. So when I started to have children, and it became clear that they were growing like weeds. And I realized that my three oldest are boys. I have three boys and one daughter. Um, the three oldest are, are boys. And, you know, the, my, my middle son is, uh, he's taller than I am now. He's about six foot three. And he has been followed by police on his way to school. Um, you know, even in our neighborhood where I must say that our relationship with the police and, and with authority has been pretty good. He's had that incident. And, I, and I've had to tell them, you know, my, my two oldest boys took a road trip to um, California for a wedding of a friend of theirs. And I sat down with them and told them what to do if they're in an encounter with the police. We had a very serious conversation about it because I just, yeah, it's, it's terrifying, to be honest. You start your poem, these are easy words you're speaking to me. What does the phrase easy words mean to you? 
I think easy words are the words that we have because we're not addressing what somebody in front of us is saying to us, but because we've already already decided something. We have some formula. We have a political position. We have something that's been ingrained from society, from culture, from our earliest upbringing. We have this thing that we're holding, and this thing is so hard to break out, and it's so easy to just reach back to those words, and you're you know listening to take your turn to talk. And um, those words that just come out and may not even be addressing the reality of the person who's speaking to you, those are the easy words. And and I was also thinking about the easy words of those in authority, in a position of power, who, of course, always say this, you know, there's plenty of opportunity, there's no racism, there's no problem, uh, you know, people who are killed are all resisting, that sort of thing. These are just easy, you know, words to use to suppress um, the understanding of a real need for change. And there's a part in the poem where you flip that phrase around. And yet we run on easy words while expecting the immigrant who worked to build a business to accept that his destruction is imminent, to sacrifice their life's work to the burning fury of justice, though we know they won't be bailed up by the very system they trust in. Is that meant to acknowledge that the oppressed can also oppress others? Yes. This whole, I hope, I hope folks, uh, anyone who listens to this poem or hears this, does, understands that there is self-criticism in this, and there is, there is basically, I think, just something that I needed to get out that I thought needed to go all the way around. When the riot started, and you know, there obviously there were pictures of uh, damaged storefronts and that sort of thing, and sometimes somebody would post a feel-good story of um, maybe uh, a store owner who would say, "Well, you know, um, I'm will if this is the price." for people to pay attention and uh, for social justice to happen. It's a price I'm willing to happen, which is noble. And, and I applaud that as well. But I'm an immigrant as well. And I had to build, you know, my life, career, family, everything in this country from nothing when I came. So I, my heart also breaks for those people who very often, you know, where we tend to be, immigrants tend to be the lowest end of the ladder. And so it's really easy to dismiss, um, you know, uh, our needs and, and our responses. And so, yes, there's, it's easy to say, okay, um, let's just go smash things. So we have to think that there are consequences to that as well. And we also have to remember that there are other social just injustices that happen at the same time as uh, the ones that we are protesting in the moment. There are a lot of mentions of children and parents in this piece. I wonder, you mentioned that you're having conversations with your kids, obviously, about racism. But what conversations are you having with them about this moment and this movement? And how does being a parent influence your art? Well, being a parent has has been amazing for my art because you you're living a life all over again with your children and and all the things that maybe you glossed over in your first go around, you get to go back and explore them. And uh, but. In my in my case, uh, working, you know, dealing dealing with the kids and trying to get them to, uh, you know, come up in this world and um, and to be the people who I want them to be. There's a continuum there where um, everything I've learned about how to express myself and how to get that out uh, interacts with everything I've learned about needing to be a father, needing to nurture my children, other children I'm involved in. I love to coach um, soccer, um, especially as well, and uh, I think that. The reason why children feature so prominently in the piece is that 
they have to they need to be spoken to by the older generation so that they understand that they have the self-possession to take things into their hands that need to be taken into their hands, whether environmental concerns, social justice concerns, et cetera. We speak to them so that they learn to speak for themselves. And you talked about the intersectional issues in your poem and climate change, systemic racism. And there's a line that goes, you're running on easy words, but slow to wean your engines of fossil fuels that choke us. Talk more about that. I, that partly was tied in with um, a bit of a call out there of how quickly the corporate, you know, um, misses came about the BLM movement. And, you know, it's these same corporations. Again, I, I'm uh, as an immigrant who's been a business in business. I'm definitely not against corporations or anything, but I do believe that it's easy to, you know, on one hand say, you know, we stand with the protesters and, when you understand that there are some aspects of racism include the fact that, for example, environmental issues affect people of color far more, uh, you know, distressingly than they affect other groups. That's the sort of thing that a corporation that was really serious about addressing these things would go right to the boardroom and immediately start to tackle. And they're all intersectional. You know, the, the dictum, you know, an injustice anywhere is the threat to justice everywhere applies. And this is actually only half of the full poem that I wrote. Um, I wanted to get something out punchy. I wanted it to be quick. I wanted it to be something that could be easily heard and digested. But in the other, I, I, I tackle issues such, you know, from feminism and to LGBTQ issues, et cetera, um, and a lot of other intersectional issues that are all tend to be dismissed with easy words. Now, in about the 30 seconds we have left, I understand that you were set to publish a book that a bit, but it was on pause because of COVID-19. Will that book explore similar themes? Yes. Uh, most of my writing, I, again, I haven't been too political, even as a poet. So most of my writing has been about identity, having been brought up in Nigeria, in America, periods of schooling in the UK, and sometimes being confused about who I am. So the book is called Nchefu Road. It's coming out from the UK press uh, called uh, Black Spring Publishing Group. And it's going to explore a lot of that identity. There's a lot of my native Igbo language and how I've had to reach back and uh, embrace those roots in it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Poet Uche Obuji of Superior, Colorado. He recently wrote and performed the piece Easy Words after protests were sparked by police brutality and racism. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.